Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Suzette Kent, the now former Federal Chief Information Officer. It sounds a little weird to say former, but your last day was uh, July 4th. You have uh, been out of the administration now for a few days now. So uh, one congratulations. I've heard OMB, the Federal CIO role, is one of those jobs, the hardest jobs you'll ever love or, or something to that effect. Certainly is a phenomenal job and I was honored uh, to, to be in it and you know, excited to see what's going to come, you know, as Maria Grant Jordan, the OFCIO team and all the CIOs continue on the path that we were on. And you know, from a personal perspective, there were some uh, matters that, that I had to focus on and we were at a phenomenal transition point. And um, it, it, again, an honor to serve. I enjoyed it. It was a privilege and I'm very excited about the types of impacts that we made. And as a citizen, I really want to see those continue because um, I think what we saw with digital capabilities, with the ability to use data and the importance of modernization, those matter all the time, no matter who is leading the charge. And uh, there's a phenomenal set of folks to keep leading that charge. And we'll get to some of those uh, accomplishments later in the conversation. But the, your decision to leave was maybe a little surprising for, to some of us as we've been following this. A lot of times when in a political appointee like yourself is in through the January, you know, kind of new year of an election year. The, the belief is, well, that person will stay through the rest of the year. Just, as much as you're able to kind of feel comfortable, I know there's, there's some personal reasons, but if you just offer just a little bit, your decision was obviously, you, you, your plan was to stay, but then some personal issues kind of jumped in and it just was timing worked out for several reasons, both because of Maria joining, but also for family issues. You know, uh, unfortunately, we don't have all the time in the world for the things that we would like to do. And sometimes that drives, you know, tough choices. And when, you know, I, I had some pressing matters that needed urgent priority and recognized that we were at a place with very capable, very competent leaders. Um, it, it was a, a point where it was the right time to transition. I, I know there are some reports out there that said you were quote unquote retiring. <laughs> uh, I, I find that hard to believe only in the sense that you may be leaving federal service, but I imagine whatever comes next for you, whether it's in six months or a year from now or whenever, you will probably go back into the work world eventually. You're not that old. How about that? Yeah, I was just going to say, Jason, now you, retirement is a far, far, I have decades more and I'm still excited about modernization, what we're going to do with data, AI and automation. And I will be back in those spaces at the point that priorities allow me to, to shift back. I don't know in exactly what capacity. Um, that's actually not something I'm thinking of right now. I'm just like, you know, the, the commitment when I was in the role to focus 100%. Um, I am focused on some other matters now. And at when it, the time is appropriate, I'm going to get right back into the space that I love. And we'll see what those opportunities look like. And you may see me again, but we'll see. So this was your, your first foray into the federal space. When we look back over your career, you spent most of the time or your entire time really in the, the commercial sector. So did you get bit by the federal government, the federal service bug? And, and secondly, 
you probably may have walked in with some preconceived notions of what working for the government were like. How did that compare to your expectations? What, how did your experience compare? First of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up to, to one thing. I've been a military wife, the majority of, you know, when I was a single parent and service has been incredibly important throughout everything that, that I've done. And even when I was in the private sector, I worked with the federal government with, you know, SNAP, TANF, and WIC with many of the states, with foundations, with um, not-for-profits and healthcare. And I worked with companies that had significant commitments to making an impact and doing good, you know, in our communities, whether that was EY, JP Morgan, Accenture. So service wasn't that far off. And I'd been around the, the federal space. And I do believe when there's an opportunity to serve and if you can contribute, you should. And I would actually encourage many of my compadres in the private sector. Um, and I saw many of those, uh, many, you know, have done this during a time frame. They should take that same opportunity. What I learned is that there's incredibly talented and passionate people. And I would put the, the talent, you know, on par with, with what I saw, you know, especially as a consultant, I was in many, many corporations in different areas. What I also learned is the processes are a lot harder. They're a lot more infuriating. And I can say that now. And I, I think that, you know, my healthy questioning of things all the time is actually a great balance. You know, not having grown up in a government process where it's acceptable to say an acquisition is going to take six months. No, that's not acceptable. And there is a better way. We have to, you know, for a better way. So, so I think that um, creative tension is healthy. I think the talent is there. Um, and I think it's great for Americans to realize the, the type of, you know, passion and focus that our federal employees do bring uh, to what they're doing. And granted, I spent my time in the technology space, but um, I was I was very, very um, pleased and as an, as a citizen inspired by the work that people do every day. One of the things that, that I've kind of learned over the last 20 some years covering this market and being kind of on the outside looking in a lot is just the, the breadth and depth of the, of the government. Is that the thing that surprised you the most when technology is technology, yes, but how it's applied to weather forecasting or how it's applied to crops or how it's applied to fill in the blank? Were you, were you surprised by just that breadth and depth? I, I actually wasn't surprised. That was one of the things I was most excited about. You know, again, when, you know, when I was in financial services, I served 17 industries and developing products and services, I could be out talking to, you know, someone at a wine vineyard and a hospital, a university foundation. And then, you know, in Wisconsin with a siding manufacturer and then with the stars network in Denver. And I'm actually quoting that because that was one particular week. So the breadth of experiences and the understanding of the different industries, particularly, you know, in the top 20 industries that I've been fairly involved in developing products and services for. What was unexpected was the interconnectivity between many of them, as well as the wide, wide breadth 
of types of services. You know, some of our um, older agencies, you know, older from meaning amount of time, do all kinds of things that sometimes logically didn't seem like they would go there. I think we got to ask some of those questions and we heard from citizens about some of those types of things when we looked at the reform plan. And, you know, sometimes I would be trying to figure out, well, wait, who owns this and where does this go? Those things weren't logical uh, because of how, you know, our government has evolved. And again, I think it is important at points in time that we pause and we look at that and say, does this still make sense? Does this make sense for us to most efficiently and effectively deliver whatever those services are, whether it's housing or food or, or clean water or power? And that's just a natural part of the process. And in business, you ask yourself that, you know, all the time when you look at your strategic plan, when you look at your markets and those types of things. So, you know, I wasn't surprised by the breadth and depth. I was surprised by the alignment sometimes. I know past administrations have pointed out, you know, if you're a salmon swimming up river, you're, you're overseen by this agency. If you're salmon on the plate, you're overseen by that agency. If you're a salmon. And <laughs> so I, I know that, that, that there's a lot of frustration there. But at the same time, they also open the door to a lot of opportunity to, to really bring people together. When you look back o over kind of this couple of years, anything else surprised you the most? Was there anything that, that would you say this, you know, you mentioned the acquisition process. Did that, was that among the most frustrating aspects of your position? Some of the things that were not only incredibly frustrating, they're the things that in whatever capacity you know, that I'm in, I think we need to keep continue to work on as a nation. The way that we fund and resource, and I'm not just funding money, yes, but resourcing people, mind share, commitment of the agency, the way that we handle technology inside the government is not aligned with the way that Americans live, nor where we need to be as a world power. Um, and what I mean by that is we still fund in single year increments. We still fund like a project has a finite start and stop date. It does not. Just like we have to continually fund the refurbishments of our national parks and our roads and look at, you know, our energy system, our technology infrastructure is no different. And, and so that mindset that, you start and you finished and you don't have to do anything else is infuriating. I also, you know, I saw on Monday <laughs> when we we're looking at, you know, I, I hear, you know, a lot of modernize, modernize, but modernization takes multi-year commitment. If you're not going to fund directly, you're not going to fund the TMF and you're not going to allow agencies to have working capital, then I guess there's those magic wands are going to get passed out somewhere because there has to be a mechanism. And right now, there, there is not um, a sustainable you know, mechanism. And I think if we've got Congress on one side asking for modernization, they have to help with the tools on the other side to ensure that that can be delivered. All right, Suzette, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to delve into that a little bit more because I think one of the challenges that I've seen over the years is OMB maybe doesn't quite, in, in, from the outsider's perspective, do enough to, to kind of get Congress to turn that big ship. 
Well, let's take a quick break. My guest today is the former federal CIO, Suzette Kent. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Suzette Kent, the former federal CIO. Again, I'll just continue to say this is an exit interview of sorts and kind of odd to say former, but your last day was July 4th, so we're catching up after that, that time frame, and it's great to uh, talk again. You mentioned at the end of the last segment, Suzette, a little bit about something that was frustrating, and the fact is that we're still funding projects uh, or funding IT year after year versus long-term, multi-year commitments. As you said, not allowing, if you're not going to fund the TMF, Technology Modernization Fund, if you're not going to allow working capital funds, then pass out the magic wands. One of the things that, that I would kind of go back around to is talk a little bit about your, as much as you can, conversations with the Hill, your dealings with the Hill to convince them that we're all out of magic wands and they should do these other things. My conversations with the Hill obviously were many in those spaces um, and they are around those things. The fact that modernization and just the overall technology process is a life cycle. And you have different funding needs at different points in time. And, and, and those are fairly well-known cycles, whether you talk to a vendor, whether you talk to an agency, or whether you went out and talked to someone in industry. They're pretty well-known and pretty consistent. Yet we don't behave like that. And there's expectations that we're getting away from legacy systems, that we're improving digital service delivery, that we are improving cybersecurity. And we have done some of those things, but I would argue, and I know I talked to you about it quite a bit, but not fast enough. And I don't think fast enough for American citizens. But part of the way we change the dialogue, you know, with the Hill, and sometimes, you know, when you say Congress, that's a lot of people. And I've had some very effective conversations with those who understand technology and they've been phenomenal supporters. I think about some of the conversations I had with, you know, Will Hurd and Robin Kelly when I, I first joined. You know, Senator Hassan's focus uh, right now on both modernization and workforce. Senator Johnson's focus on cybersecurity. There, there are many who embrace what the journey needs to look like. And there's many business people who see what happens in American industry and they expect us to do those same things. But there are others who, you know, when it comes down to funding or to resourcing or making those things a priority, somehow some of those concepts, you know, don't necessarily make the list. And one of the things that, you know, I talk with the agencies and the agency leadership, you know, whether that's the secretaries, the deputy secretaries, the CIOs, it is ways that we take our technology conversations and we challenge ourselves to, to not talk about a software or a project or the, the things that in the community we love to chat about. Talk about the outcomes, right? Talk about the results that are delivered for the American people. Talk about the mission, you know, that is served and tie those things together in a way that um, not only, you know, we've had the administration support, but we have a greater support in Congress because it is meaningful to their constituents. And, and that's really the way, you know, one of the things that we have to continue to do more of is, you know, not speak our own um, language, but talk about results delivered. And, you know, that's a place where folks like yourself and those in the media, you know, can be of assistance. I think too often that issue of, as you mentioned, 
talking about outcomes, citizen services, that is something that's been a long time in coming. I think we've seen in the last few years with this push towards customer experience, with ensuring that the customer is at the front of the conversation. Do you think, just based on your conversations with, with the Hill, that they understand that much better than, hey, if we get this new shiny widget and connect to this other shiny widget, we can get integration of the two databases that are disparate, yada, yada. Do you think they understand that or are they still, that goes over their heads too? Because well, what about my district or my the people I represent is really what they're really focused on. I am not underappreciating how complex their roles are sometimes because they do have to balance the good of the people they are representing with the, you know, the, the broad good of the United States. And many of them cover committees that, you know, as we talked about, cover a lot of different industries, and a lot of different subject matter. Um, so if we talk in those small nuances, sometimes that is difficult to put the pieces together. But I know that one of the things that, that I always tried to do when I was having a conversation was tie back agency results to how it impacted their jurisdiction. Um, you know, what was going on in their state, examples, you know, of those types of, of things. Um, how many citizens were impacted, you know, by X, Y, and Z, so that we are tying it to something that they're going to care about and their constituents are going to care about, because that's the job that they're asked to do. And, you know, just also understanding technology as a mission enabler, you know, some of them, you know, actually like to get in the details. Sometimes they'll, like you said, they'll say, hey, wait, that industry got this new shiny widget. Why don't we have one? Those take different, you know, kinds of conversations, and it takes a recognition of the fact that we serve, you know, one of the largest customer um, sets in the world. And looking at success stories is always a great way to challenge yourself, but you have to make sure they fit. And I think one of the frustrations we get, and you talk about us in the media, is we're always looking for those success stories from agencies. And, and sometimes they're, they're hard to dig out. And you've been very kind over the years to, to help me dig out some of those success stories. We'll just call out our friends at the Labor Department, since I think I worked with them for more than two years to, to talk to them about their success stories. So that's a good point. Let me continue our conversation and maybe move off of Congress. I want to come back around to you as a person for a second. I'll be the first to admit when you were named the, the federal CIO, we all looked at your background and said, wow, this person doesn't seem like she's qualified. I'll even say it doesn't even look like you have any position of technology in the background, but you obviously have shown that you're more, you're more than qualified. You understood people, you understood management, and then you understood the technology. When you took that position, maybe hearing some of those whispers, maybe the fact that you hadn't been a quote unquote CIO before, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, how did you approach your position? What was your kind of management philosophy to, to be in the federal CIO? I did think it was interesting because if folks who actually did look at my career and the things that I've done, I've actually spent my entire career working beside and for CIOs and building software products and finding solutions where there weren't any in the industry. Granted, I did that on behalf of my clients many times except for, you know, when I was at JP Morgan. And in that space, I had responsibility for one of the largest global expansions that a financial institution has ever undertaken. And we did it successfully, right? And so my title might not have been CIO, 
but the span of the companies that I worked with, the industry challenges that, that we changed in a highly regulated industry globally, and the number of vendors I worked with, that was one of the things, you know, people would say, oh, you know, all these government vendors, they're exactly the same vendors that I've been working with. And they're not just the same companies, the same people, right? I, I know a lot of these, uh, or I knew a lot of, of the people directly. So that model, and especially because the majority of my career was spent as a consultant, you come in when there's a challenge that someone wants help with. You come in when, there isn't a clear path forward. So, so those are the types of things that I like to do. So I didn't, I, I didn't look at it any differently. And I use the same with the agencies. You know, I always approach them and their mission objectives the same way that I approached a client you know, in the consulting side. Clarity of the objectives, understanding what they want to accomplish, understanding the team, the talent, the resources, and the priority that they were gonna you know, put to something. And making sure that we had consistent dialogues, you know, along the way, you know, towards that, that set of goals. And I very much value the vendor community because I looked at them. One of the things I did realize because some of the processes were complicated and others is that they have an important voice in telling those success stories and demonstrating success. And I saw it. I, you know, worked with 30 different clients and solving the same type of challenge and recognized that there's different ways to get to that same objective. So, you know, also the management maturity to balance how you meet objectives based on the type of team and environment in which you're working. Uh, I, I think those are the things that, you know, I brought to the table that were maybe, you know, different than someone who was much more, you know, a hands-on day-to-day technologist. Being a consultant meant that every time you walked into a new client, you had to kind of learn, ask good questions, listen, very important, and then ask, kind of help them get to that final answer. I imagine with the agencies, whether you're talking to Maria at SBA or Jose at HHS or the, the folks at, you know, DHS, you had to take that same approach. And I think that's how you were effective versus coming in and saying, we got to get rid of all the X or all the Y type of technology and just get to the cloud or whatever. Is, is that, is that the, the approach you took as, as you got started and got, were able to understand what was happening? I hope that many of the folks that were on the team and worked with the team would tell you, you know, when I looked at the mission, I saw what was in the president's management agenda and the administration priorities, but I saw the primary role of the federal CIO and the OFCIO team as being enablers. Enablers for what objectives we need to achieve through technology for the entire federal government. And so, as you said, I looked at, wait, where are the policies outdated and they're getting in the way of doing the right things? Where do agencies, you know, not have the resources or the tools that they need? Where is there a process that's in their way? Um, where do we need to elevate conversations? And, you know, it, it was exactly that. I spent time with every one of the CIOs understanding their mission and going through, I went through the dashboard with all of the projects, right? And understanding what their main projects are, which ones, you know, had challenges and, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed the most in the role was working with the CIO council, where we can we could take some of those things that were common problems 
and find you know a way to solve them in a, in a common petri dish <laughs> and, and you know try some things not everything worked but a lot did and even if it didn't work we advanced the thinking to move you know to the next piece so you know that was critical to the approach that i i took and um you know i think that it was um you know, it's been part of my, you know, long-term career style, but it also helped with the clarity with agencies of what we were going to focus on. There's so many things that need to get done, but we have to be very, we had to be very focused or very um, clear on the ones that were a priority and use, you know, effort, energy, and resources on those. There's plenty to dig out from that, and we're going to talk about some of those successes in a second. But first, Suzette, let's take a quick break. We can come back. We can continue our conversation. My guest today is Suzette Kent, the former Federal Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Suzette Kent, the former Federal Chief Information Officer. Suzette, as I mentioned to you, this is an exit interview of sorts, uh, and I really appreciate the fact that, as you said, you came into the role as federal CIO just about two and a half years ago, and you really want to look at different things to how to move, get rid of barriers, if you will. I remember a speech you gave at the end of, I want to say 2018, and you talked about, you spent the first year really just looking at all those old policies and get rid of them. And then you spent 2019 redoing those policies. So let's talk about your accomplishments. Uh, I could point to a, a, a several, but what stood out to you that you think will have the longest impact uh, from your tenure? Sometimes you don't slow down enough to think about those things. So, so maybe you know, thinking about some of those. You, you know, you mentioned policy. I consider that clearing the tables, right? And that was like catch-up work. We should have been there. And that's some of the, the things that we did with the construction of the policies was what I'm, I'm going to call a pressure valve or a date timer or a trigger created ways to ensure that not only did we update the policy, there was a structure that would ensure that it stayed current. And whether that was specific dates in the policy, whether that was a committee or a group, um, whether it was a review, you know, time frame, any of those types of things. The shared services strategy. I did a ton of that in industry. So it almost made no sense to me, you know, where we were as a federal government. And that's one of the things that I wish I could have spent more time on. But I think the strategy that was laid down where we have a defined process for, for standards, but also um, a customer focused way to ensure that that marketplace Somebody's not just building a solution, they're managing a marketplace. And that marketplace has lots of solutions in it and it has mechanisms to keep those current. The federal data strategy is something, and you know, not just proud of the work that that entire team has done. It is a critical foundation for how we as a government, not only prepare to better serve citizens, we protect their privacy, we protect the information security, but we're preparing to effectively use more uh, advanced automation and artificial intelligence machine learning. That is the foundational step. Uh, and I know that I, I've spent a lot of time with folks. I'm really thrilled about those technologies too, but if you don't make the right investment in the foundational activities in understanding and ensuring the data is right, it's maintained, it's current, 
you know, not biased, you, you protect civil liberties, th then you're not going to drive the right outcomes, you know, with those better technologies. You know, I don't want to give my, uh, you know, my 13 year old niece, the keys to a powerful car. Um, use that same analogy. I'm thrilled about the work that we did across the councils, the CIO council, the CISO council, the reinvigoration of the small agency council and the formation of the CDO council and, you know, places where, professionals with common problems come together with uh, in a form where they think that um, and they feel like they can bring common challenges and someone's going to take action and fix those as well as they have some funds to make investments for how we might solve or how might we might examine uh, solutions to those things have uh, you know I, I think have been you know found have been important and that's where we advanced zero trust it's where you know we we set up a cloud environment that a significant number of agencies came and learned before you know they went and made their own purchases. Um, you know, as we've looked at what's going to go on with five G, we've had you know a group that did a fantastic assessment of where's what you know in the environment, and then we did things like the reskilling academy um, for. Um, cyber and, and this year the team will be doing one for data. Uh, so proving, uh, using a proof point that there are new models with which we can be successful. So I think some of the, those are some of the, the good things. And you know, Jason, I, I, I also you know, tried to spend a lot of time being transparent and whether that was with the media or with Congress or with our vendors or even, you know, universities and, and, you know, those who came in the different, you know, good government groups, being very clear about what the priorities were and what we were working on, I, I think is a critical place for the, the federal CIO, the deputy, the CISO, and, and those teams to play. All right, several things let me unpack there. Let me, let me start with the policy piece, because I think one of the important things that maybe people underestimate is clearing the decks, as you said getting rid of things or updating policies that were causing slowdowns, causing roadblocks. And I think the trusted internet connection policy is one of them. And, and I've been following this program closely over the years. From your experience before you left, how close were we to really kind of getting out those final use cases? How close was Tick really to moving to that modern setup versus the old way that really, as, as I said many times it was a the albatross around the agency's neck to move to the cloud. I think they are close and you, and you will see that. I, I know that that was an area where to, to get through some of these security worries, we had to prove things. They, it had to be kind of, you know, in the, in an environment and we had agency step up and DHS say, okay, you know, we, we will, we will watch, we will learn, we will examine that. And it's a great example of something that took a partnership between OMB and CISA, but it also took some agencies to step out, you know, and, and try some things and prove that they would work. So we were doing on a use and learn versus a forward speculation, which is a little bit different approach for some policy, but it's because, you know, some of the security protocols were critical and there was a lot of interconnectivity that we had to be able to explain 
across those many, you know, vendor communities um, and environments in which agencies operate that, you know, we needed some of those pilots to be able to answer. All right, you gave me the ubiquitous government soon when it came to the tick use cases, but hopefully maybe this summer we, we, we can expect them. It'll be a good thing. Suzette, let's take a quick break. We can come back. We can continue our conversation. My guest today is Suzette Kent, the former Federal Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Suzette Kent, the former Federal Chief Information Officer. The other one you mentioned is shared services, and, and I'll put that as one of those areas that I didn't think, it doesn't feel like there's enough progress on. I know we, you and I talked about the, the CUSMO, again, still one of my favorite acronyms in government, <laughs> the Quality Service Management Organization for DHS. And then you also recently named two other ones, Treasury for Financial Management, GSA for HR. Walk me through, that seems like that really was a slow roll and, and, and so much more could have been done. What was the challenge there and, and, and why do you feel like those are set up for future progress or future yeah. success? And Jason, for the folks working on it every day, it didn't feel like a slow roll. It definitely felt like a uh, maybe a daily fight, <laughs> a daily slog, but it was not a slow roll. So let, let's go back to like some fundamentals, right? When we talk about shared services and the organization of government and responsibilities. The concept of shared services is something that public companies around the world embrace, especially in places where there are very clear standards, very clear law, or a highly regulated space. So much so that even competing companies will come together and form, you know, in industry will form, you know, groups because they're like, hey, we all have to fight to comply with the same law. Let's just do that together. And we can spend all of our energy on our differentiated services. One might think that we would think that same thing inside the federal government. But we hold CIOs accountable, right? We hold CIOs accountable for the, the security of networks and the data that is in those networks and certain service expectations. So right there, you're, you're, you're creating a, a point of tension, whereas if I am the CIO of an agency and I am going to leverage this shared service, that, that ha there has to be a lot of trust. There has to be, I have to feel like I'm being heard as a customer and it has to be at a fair market price probably have to feel like I'm getting some differentiated services and somebody who, who's going to bring something more than I can do. That's not the history that has been, you know, experienced inside the federal government. So we had to create processes for how do I become customer centric? How do I adjudicate when we don't, when agencies don't agree, including the QSMO? How do we stay aligned on standards? That was part of some of the initial work. How do we create a vibrant marketplace? That was also some of the initial foundational work. And then if we're going to say to people, we want you to use these services, they have to have a level of visibility and transparency about what those mean. That was also part of the process. That's why the QSMOs have to present a plan. That's why the plan has to be reviewed by the Shared Services Governance Board. So a lot of that created the capability to go forward. It created a, a way to sustain and not become old and dated as soon as something is implemented. But we still have kind of that 
trust and in, in many cases, I will say jurisdiction and kind of government. And I'll, I'm going to use new pay, you know, as an example. When we were in the shutdown, it took extraordinary measures to be able to pay employees quickly. It is the only time, it is the only time in the history of the federal government, modern federal government, that we have paid employees out of cycle. And it was incredibly difficult, but we were able to do it. When we moved to telework and, you know, Congress passed different things of, you know, you can have, you know, time to take care of loved ones and you can do this and you can do that. They said, oh, great. How do we capture that? How do we know what people are doing? We're going to use pay codes. Okay, that means we have to put them in 127 time and attendance systems in five major payroll systems. Oh, can we have that next week? No, right? It doesn't work like that. I'm not going to tell you the exact amount of time. Maybe that can be another one of your shows, but that took an extraordinary amount of time. You know, that's not acceptable in a lot of other places. Look how fast, you know, we we got, you know, economic impact payments out or small business loans. We didn't move that fast for federal employees. So there's opportunity, you know, there will continue to be, you know, um, opportunity to advance that ball. But when we talk about the, that set of services, that's also a lot of money. So it moves it from different committees of jurisdiction. It also means that we need to fund, you know, differently. If you, if one were to go look at many of the current services, you would see that the, the servicing federal agencies haven't raised prices in a long time. Well, that makes it hard to, to bring new features and to stay current. So there's an expectation that once I go in, I'm locked in price. It's not a working business model. So we also have to change the business model. And that's been part of the plans is kind of forecasting, you know, what that looks like. So it is a change to how we fund. It is a change to how agencies interact with each other. And it's really important in a couple of cases, like we, again, the shutdown and the virus. What are the words that we use inside government? Mission critical services. Mission critical. Who defines mission critical? The agency that's providing the service. Well, when some agencies stop providing some services, other agencies that were using those services were impacted. Might not have been mission critical to agency A, but it was to agency B. And I think some of those interconnections, we have an opportunity to not only pay more attention to, but enhance them and think about, we figured out a way to do PIV cards, you know, to, to do different kinds of credentials. But like, that was one of the things during the shutdown, couldn't onboard anybody new because agencies, one agency did it, you know, for another. Um, the same situation, a lot of time in attendance, people went home. So when we had to do uh, things differently, we had to call people back because certain agencies had said, oh, that, that person's not mission critical. So that's a very long-winded answer. You can tell I'm passionate about it because in the long term, if we can stay the course, it is one of the places that will improve services for, for not just federal employees, but, you know, in their impact to citizens because we'll have more money for mission. Um, but it is also going to save the federal government hundreds of millions and billions in some of the estimates um, long term by not replicating the entire technology build, you know, acquire service process 
for these functions agency by agency. The business model piece is interesting because one of the biggest challenges with previous shared services attempts is the old economy act. And you're probably much more familiar with it today than you were ever before. And <laughs> you're one of the foremost experts on the law from 1934 that basically says agencies can't collect more money for a service than it costs. So right. unlike a, unlike a private sector firm, which you build in a profit and you can use that profit to reinvest. So is that why the, the private sector has to play a bigger role in shared services? Because getting that law changed is just basically too big of a lift. So how do you kind of address that barrier is through partnering with the private sector. Was that, was that your thinking? I would actually say we changed the way that we're thinking about cost. Because if you look at private sector, if you go look at how investment firms look at companies, a healthy company invests a certain amount in R&D ongoing. A healthy company spends a certain amount in technology maintenance. Why wouldn't that be part of cost? Why wouldn't we think about some of those same things? We're not out to make a profit, but we should think about it as how do we maintain high performing systems in a manner that is aligned with what we know to be sustainable and prudent across many industries. So the concept that you would provide a service and the price of that service would never change year over year is nonsensical. Find another industry where that happens, right? I, I, maybe I'd like to study that. I haven't seen one. I also, again, from kind of looking at how you value companies and how you look at what is the expected run operate numbers, those, those things are expected. And, and so the way that we fund shared services and the way that those sit in agency budgets is kind of not aligned with that. I mean, maybe... You know, we, we should not only have some estimate, we should include it in O&M in a different way, or we should look at, you know, if an agency is a QSMO, that there's a portion of their appropriation that is aligned to that, right? And that that's part of the commitment. We're just not there now. Um, I've actually talked to some of the CIOs of other countries that are have those types of utilities and looked at how they do some of those things. And, and again, there are those who do it, there's opportunity, but it's gonna take some commitment with reworking some of the laws as well as rethinking how we consider that life cycle of software. All right, very good. Suzette Ken is the former federal CIO. Suzette, thank you so much for your time. And of course, thank you for your service to the country. Thanks, Jason, for having me. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.